Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast. I am your regular host, Jacko Zwetslut, but today we have a special interview recorded by NK News Managing Director Chad O'Carroll in Washington, D.C. with Ms. Sumi Terry on April 4, 2018. Just a reminder that you can download or subscribe to our podcast not only at iTunes, but also Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, and all other good podcast platforms. You can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code PODCAST at the checkout, www.nknews.org. Sumi Terry is a senior fellow at the Career Chair at the Center of Strategic and International Studies. She has had a long and distinguished career in intelligence, policymaking, and academia following Korean issues, having worked as a senior analyst on Korean issues at the CIA and being director of Korea, Japan, and Oceanic Affairs at the National Security Council under President George W. Bush and President Barack Obama, and a senior advisor for Korea at Bauer Group Asia, among many other positions. Take it away, Chad. Okay, so uh, Dr. Terry, thank you very much for joining us today for this NK News podcast. To start out, I'm curious, how did you get into North Korea? What was it that attracted you to this subject earlier on? Well, I actually did my PhD on modern Korean history on the Park Jong-hee years. And of course, I wanted to get into academia, but I was recruited by the Central Intelligence Agency. I decided to work at the CIA, and that's how I got started working on North Korea, because there was the account that I was responsible for, North Korea political issues. And what, what was it that the CIA was attracted to uh, to bring you onto North Korea? Presumably you had some kind of Korean background or expertise that you could... Right. I'm, well, I'm 1.5 generation Korean-American. Uh, I speak Korean. I just did a PhD on modern Korean history. It's hard to do a PhD, I think, on a North Korean studies exactly. Just so much, so little information is out there. Even in terms of primary research, it's hard to do. So I think CIA determined that I might be useful to as a, someone who could uh, learn about Korea and be a Korea analyst. And when you worked at the CIA, tell us a little bit about that. What, what were you doing at the CIA as far as North Korea is concerned? What you are really is an all-source analyst. So it's not so different from working as a researcher or a think tanker. It's just that you have access to multiple sources, including classified information, which obviously includes human intelligence from our own CIA assets, signals intelligence, imageries, along with open source. So you basically gather this data, analyze the situation, and the main thing is to brief the policymakers or write reports to the president, to the National Security Council, and or the policymakers, and that's your role. So it's basically taking all of that information, processing it, and turning it into something that can be actioned by senior officials. Right. And often you get, let's say, reports from the operations, and that's called raw reports, raw data that case officers put together. But you really need to put it in, in a greater context for policymakers to understand. So the analyst role is to really gather all the different data that's out there, try to make some sense of it. Of course, it's hard, particularly when it comes to North Korea. It's really like doing a puzzle, but all the pieces are missing or some puzzle pieces are coming from different puzzle box. It's very, very difficult process, but you try to make sense of it and try to be analytical and be useful mm. to the policymakers. 
And in terms of human intelligence or North Korea, what does that look like when it comes to work, that, that line of work? I mean, it's hard to imagine from my perspective, having focused on North Korea for several years on the journalism end, that there would be sources, for example, in the North Korean government willing to risk talking directly to the US, for example, given the current state of affairs. Like what what kind of intelligence are we talking about when we, we talk about human intelligence then? That's why uh, you are absolutely correct. And that's why human intelligence on North Korea compared to some other countries, it's, it's a difficult process because it's hard to run our own CIA case officers and operations guys in North Korea. Even at the height of the Cold War, we were CIA was able to have our officers in Moscow being able to recruit assets and so on. So of course, that is not really possible in North Korea. So you're mainly dealing with North Korean officials that's outside of North Korea. But as you know, North Korean security practices are one of the best in the world. These guys are most indoctrinated and trained guys. And, you know, when North Korean officials are out of North Korea, they don't even go anywhere, go to the bathroom by themselves. So they move in pairs. So it's extremely difficult process to even recruit a North Korean official. But we do have North Korean assets. Um, it's not it's not robust like some other countries countries uh, that we follow. So it's, it's, but it's part of it. It's part, it's just one puzzle. It's like one source of information. You combine that with signals in, you know, imagery, defective reporting, uh, military reporting, embassy cables, open source information, and then try to draw some sort of analytic line from that. Over the years, open source has become increasingly important. And I did an interview recently with a former member of the UN panel of experts, Katsusan from Japan. And he was saying during his time at the panel, the intelligence shared by UN member states with the panel was not actually that useful in terms of all of the indicators they were collecting information from. Do you think that the case with North Korean intelligence these days, that it's starting to become a little dilute? looted by the increasing scope and breadth of open source. Yes, I, I, I agree with that. And it's hard to sort of make sense of uh, trying to draw what's true and not true from these open source reporting. Oftentimes, it's not true. And even you can even hear, you, you, you see that somebody saying, oh, we read somewhere that, you know, Chang Song Tech was, ex, you know, dog eaten by dogs. I mean, this kind of wild claims can be made in the open source. So you really, again, have to be able to sort of look at multiple sources and see if there is where that source is originating from from and draw your own conclusion. But I do think there's danger on just chasing after anything that sounds dramatic and interesting uh, when there's no real grain of kernel of truth to mm. that report. What was it like, like in terms of your period 2001 to 2008, what were the sort of big surprises, if you will, during that period? Was there anything that caught you off guard or that came out of the blue? It's not that it caught me off guard, but that is the time when we, you know, I remember in 2002 when we, the intelligence community and the CIA, discovered that North Korea was pursuing uranium enrichment program. That was significant. Uh, finding, obviously, um, that led to sort of the end of that 
whole process. There are different times that you're not necessarily surprised by it, but there are some momentous events like that. That was a significant one. And then when Kim Jong-il died, I, I think I read somewhere that you said that being a, a bit of an intelligence gap around his death, would, would that be a fair characterization? I think there would be a fair characterization, not only, you know, because CIA didn't know it. I think the South Korean intelligence service also didn't pick it up. Even Chinese didn't pick it up. It was 48 hours that people People found out that Kim Jong-il died. And that's only because North Koreans decided to tell the world that Kim Jong-il died. It just shows you how um, North Koreans are able to keep information like that or how poor sort of everybody else's intelligence is as well. Yeah. Do you think do you think intelligence has improved since then when it comes to North Korea? Or? I'm not sure if it has necessarily improved. It's just that, you know, there's coordination. It's, it's also allied coordinations, uh, you know, South Korea and U.S tried to have close coordination along with the Japanese. And we have also our four eyes, our Brits and Australians and everybody else. I'm not sure if we have significantly improved intelligence because there's still the same gap in terms of being able to run human intelligence. And even with intercepts and signals intelligence, North Koreans already know um, they're being watched or, or listened to. So I think they have sort of found ways to get around that too. So I wouldn't say necessarily it's it technical capability has necessarily improved so much, but we everybody tries to make you know do what with what we have and try to work with each other. Or at least allies do. Now, back in that period of time you're working there, did you get any sense for how the North Korean government communicates with its embassies, diplomats? They are very careful with emails and phone conversations because they know that, or they are very paranoid that they are being monitored. So again, it's sort of it's it's not an easy process to any kind of to crack through. North Koreans are probably the most paranoid people <laughs> in terms of um, worrying about being listened to or, or their communication being intercepted or their emails being read. So that's just another hurdle. Looking back at the last 10, 15 years, what's your sense for the level of investment the US has made in intelligence collection on North Korea? Has it been enough, do you think? I think so. I, I don't necessarily think that it's lack of, that North Korea is not a priority or we're not trying to invest more. That's not the problem. The problem is just naturally North Korea is one of the hardest targets just because it is so isolated. And it is so, so again, in, even in, with Soviet Union, we were able to have uh, people in there. So it's just the nature of North Korean state um, and how they operate and makes it so difficult. And the has recently set up this career mission center. What role do you think that's going to play and why do you think it was needed? If, as you say, you think it's just a tough nut to crack. Well, you still need it because North Korea has now become the most important issue, foreign policy issue for the United States. Clearly, the Trump administration is prioritizing North Korea as the uh, the most immediate critical issue that we need to resolve. In that case, CIA has to sort of match that level of policymakers' interest. So you put together a mission center where you have analysts, operators, targeters, everybody in the same space. So there's a faster coordination. You're not. So it still is helpful. Every time there's a crisis anywhere in the world, this is normally what happens to have a center where it's, a, it's sort of all hands on deck, just to show that you're now really prioritizing this issue over other issues. And do you think there's sufficient sharing of 
of information about North Korea within the various departments, ministries of US government that come into contact with this portfolio in one way or another? Well, I do think sometimes there's a lot of overlapping and maybe even redundant work that's been conducted because there are 16 intelligence agencies in the United States and there are many people who cover North Korea from CIA, from Defense Intelligence Agency, from INR, FBI, and so on. But I do think that there is more coordination, especially done through National Intelligence Council in the Office of Director of National Intelligence. We know that different agencies often have differing views on North Korea's capability, intentions, or whatever, and you need to coordinate. It's At least you have some sense of what the intelligence community's bottom line is on North Korea's, you know, whatever that issue that you're following. One of the things that comes up recently is the uh, role of the sort of intelligence briefs that are going to Donald Trump every day. Do you think that there is the the current environment with the White House is sufficiently open to taking care of the sort of granular detail for those types of reports to be playing the kind of impact they would have had during, for example, the Obama administration? No, I don't. And I think this is a, a very serious concern because when intelligence analysts write a PDB or national intelligence estimate, every single word has been chosen with care. It has been carefully coordinated by many analysts, supervisors across different agencies. And it was chosen for a reason. It conveys subtlety, conveys a a complexity. And therefore, if the president does not read the memo that was written for him with these very carefully selected words, uh, what happens with oral briefing is that, you know, you can easily sort of hype it up or you can sort of tone it down. This oral briefing is a little bit different. Uh, it loses nuance. So I'm, I'm afraid that if the president does not read the words that's written carefully, all the nuance gets thrown out. I think it's important, particularly when you're covering a country like North Korea, that nuance does not get dismissed. So I am very concerned that this president's style is that he doesn't like to read um, the memos that's written for him. Then the briefer and briefer's perspective become sort of the overwhelming intelligence community's perspective. And it's, I'm not saying, for example, Mike Pompeo might have di- you know, changed around the information. It's just that oral briefing is still different from what the actual analyst meant by writing and choosing these specific words. When the president does not read it, he's going to miss all that. So I do think it's, it's not a good thing. So I'm concerned about that. And going into this summit, I mean, do you think, based on what we know, the president's style and approach, that he is familiar with the granularity of the the past record when it comes to North Korean denuclearization attempts? I think the president might have some understanding, broad strokes that we've tried to negotiate with North Korea for many, many years. But I think a lot of granularity is probably missing. To be fair, even if we had full staff that prepared a summit book, a preparation briefing book, and it was carefully coordinated through interagency coordination process, again, the president might not take a look at that. He might not read it at all. So it is a problem. President Trump might walk into a meeting with Kim Jong-un without being fully prepared and just sort of relying on his gut instinct to solve this crisis that's been going on for several decades. And in terms of uh, this summit that is likely going to take place, what kind of impact do you think Bolton is going to have on how this all pans out? 
if he will even have an impact. I think it remains to be seen what kind of national security advisor Borton is going to turn out to be. But I am concerned that just by geography, by location alone, he'll be one of the first person that the president talks to and the last person that the president talks to. And, pres- uh, and John Borton is a very, very smart person. And I think he knows how to speak the kind of language that the president understands. So I do think he will have significant influence because he's going to be able to sort of put it in words that, that rings true to Trump's ears. And so I am concerned that he would have sort of outsized influence uh, on the president. And we all know that John Bolton's views on North Korea is very hawkish. You can agree or disagree, but I don't think you can disagree with the fact that his views are very hawkish and it has been for a very, very long time. Yeah, I mean, of course, he said about the summit that he welcomes it uh, if Kim Jong-un will tell Donald Trump which ports and airports U.S. vessels can come into to literally collect the nuclear program. Now, that seems like quite an extreme bargaining position. How do you think that's going to translate into what the president ultimately wants from from this meeting? The wild card truly here is President Trump, and he needs a win here or so. And I think even he hopefully understands that that's not going to quite work with Kim Jong-un. Because President Trump wants to walk away from this meeting, also being able to say, hey, America, look what I've done here. I've been able to accomplish something that all my predecessors have not been able to accomplish. So for him to do that, you sort of need a sort of a lesser expectation and of not such a extreme goal that's not going to be met. Um, so that at least Trump and Kim Jong-un can both walk away from this with some sort of statement that they could agree on. So they both can sort of say, OK, this is a win for, you know, they can spin it and, and tell their own respective countries, U.S. And, and North Korea, that they've got something out of this. And what's your forecast for this meeting? Do you, do you think the two sides are going to come out of this in ways that can placate their domestic stakeholders? I think there is a chance that this meeting could actually go okay, that it doesn't necessarily go bust. Um, There's a chance that Kim Jong-un and Trump could also get along. I understand that Kim Jong-un in person could be charming and charismatic. And I also heard that about Mr. Trump. So they could even hit it off. Or if they could just see this as a beginning of a process and just walk away after agreeing to some grandiose, generalized statement about commitment to denuclearization and some sort of uh, normalization in the future and then sort of let then lower level officials work it out, then at least both of them can walk away from this initial meeting and call it a success. Do you think if that was the approach, someone like Bolton might walk out? No, I think that's why it remains to be seen what kind of national security advisor Ambassador Bolton is going to be. I think he will be just coming in. And I think if this is what Mr. Trump wants, I think Bolton would have to follow that. Now, after this initial meeting, then that's where the hard part is going to start. And we know that Mr. Bolton has extremely skeptical view of North Korea, very, very cynical about North Korea's intentions, whether North Korea, even if they say they are in committed to denuclearization, would they really? We've seen that North Korea agree to things in the past. So that's not the hard part. Agree- getting, getting any kind of agreement out of North Korea is not the most difficult part. It's the follow through. It's the verification. It's everything else that comes after the agreement. So I think initially, even John Bolton could be okay with this kind of a meeting, but the difficulty would be after the meeting. And now we've had Kim Jong-un go to China uh, unexpectedly. We've seen since then him meet with the IOC president, a day or two later observe a K-pop performance in Seoul. And of course, Moon is going to be going to Panmunjom on April 27th. Do you see any chance of 
North Korea, South Korea, and China having their own selfish reasons to keep this negotiation process going for perhaps longer than is reasonable for achieving credible denuclearization in order to forestall the chance that the US may uh, take some kind of unilateral strike. What I'm trying to get at is, is there a chance that if the US comes in with a very firm position, it could be the odd one out? I can absolutely see that. And I can see that's going Going to be the issue or clashing point with the United States, this timeline, China and North Korea, and perhaps even South Korea, have incentive to have a more protracted negotiation process. I think, in fact, that might be Kim Jong-un's play here is to sort of wait out the Trump administration by some time. And that absolutely makes sense from North Korean perspective. From the U.S.'s perspective, particularly with people like Bolton, there is a concern anyway that this is North Korea's play, that North Korea is trying to buy time. So the U.S. have the opposite an incentive. We want to sort of conclude this big deal and start seeing denuclearization or some sort of actual activity towards denuclearization. So I think this is going to be a point of conflict or some sort of, you know, something that needs to be figured out. Changing focus a little bit. You've recently joined CSIS. What role do you think think tanks have with a presidency like this? Was it's quite difficult, but I think think tanks are a, a sort of a bridge between academia and policymakers. And I've been in the government. I've also been in academia. So think tank, I, I like being in think tank because this is where you, we make active policy recommendations, which is not exactly what academics do. Academics can just go off and do their research without necessarily having a policy perspective or policy recommendation. And when you're in the government, you're not really also free to speak your mind necessarily. So I like being in a position where we are free to think and make policy recommendations. Now, again, with a, a sort of unpredictable president like Mr. Trump, um, sometimes it's very frustrating because you don't know if necessarily your policy recommendations are having any kind of impact. But we have also close relationship with the Hill, with the congressmen and senators. And so there are other government officials that we have close interactions with that's also important in terms of having this kind of policy level conversation. So, you know, this is your job and we, we have to sort of keep on doing it. And do you think the president himself is takes into account what things ha- think tanks have to say or I don't know if this president actively listens or watches or I think he's he takes more from Fox News than think tanks he doesn't even listen to his own advisors uh, you know when McMaster said do not congratulate Putin and put it in capital letters and if your chief advisor says that and you still do I uh, so I, as a think tanker I'm not going to be offended if he's not necessarily watching what we do and say and take our advice to heart. But again, the president was one person. There are other you know, parts in the government and other folks who are listening. One theory that seems to have resonated with this presidency, in particular senior officials, Pompeo, H.R. McMaster, until he departed recently, is this idea that Brian Myers uh, from Pusan has been talking a lot about, which is that North Korea's ultimate goal is unification of the Korean peninsula. Having worked on the issue for so many years, What's your assessment of that idea? Do you think that's really what the North Koreans want at the end of the day? I think in theory, yes, North Koreans could ha- could want that. I mean, because people are afraid that by admitting that North Korea could have more offensive design in mind, particularly unification on its own terms, or trying to decouple U.S.-South Korea alliance over the long term, by admitting that somehow you're now advocating some sort of military action or some uh, a very hawkish policy towards North Korea, I think we can acknowledge that this is something that North Korea still might want and, and perhaps 
dream about, but that it's still unrealistic and that we can take active steps to prevent that. Just admitting that this is something the North Koreans could want, doesn't that make it a realistic thing or that they are able to do it or that we are unable to stop North Koreans from doing it? Why not if North Korea could achieve unification on its own terms? Why not would they not want that? If they could decouple U.S.-South Korea alliance, if I'm North Koreans, I would want that. So that's not such a far-fetched thing to say. So I'm with Myers and everybody else who say, okay, North Korea have aggressive design. And I, you can admit that and still say, so what? We can not let that happen. South Korea also talks about unification and during the Pak Geun-hye government, there was right. the, the Dresden Doctrine. And, right. you know, it was regularly espoused that right. South Korea should take right. that leading role. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, South Korea is a rival state for North Korea that's freer, that's richer. Just for South Korea to continue to exist for long term, North Korea still has to always worry about sort of German-style unification by, you know, hegemonic absorption, like a unification, German-style unification. That's not, that can't be a good thing, the North Koreans, from North Korean perspective. Now, one of the things that seems incompatible with ongoing negotiations is the idea of raising human rights. Um, just today, Foreign Minister Kang said that South Korea needs more time to prepare to raise the issue of human rights, meaning it can't be raised at this summit. Do you, do you buy that as credible? I really can understand both sides here because for too long, human rights issue have not been a central focus because of our such uh, priority that we we place on resolving the nuclear and missile crisis. That said, South Korea has is working a very, you know, you have to balance everything so carefully. And they're just now focused on just for North Korea to just commit to denuclearization, to just prepare for this North Korea-U.S. summit. And it has to be done well so that U.S. and North Korea summit does not go badly. Because once that meeting fails or goes badly, this is not a good scenario for anybody. So I can understand Foreign Minister Kang's statement or South Korean perspective that this moment right now might not be the best time to yet throw, put in, you know, another thing on the agenda. I know Japanese are going to now want to talk about the abduction issue, and this is going to be Prime Minister Abe's position. But again, you know, it's hard to just pile it on when we're trying to just really get to the next level. Just, I do understand and I'm sympathetic to what South Korean government is saying. You denuclearize in theory, let's say, most analysts don't believe it's likely, but the idea of maximum pressure is that that's what the outcome should be. Imagine it works. If you're a North Korean official, what's next? It seems very unlikely that the US, South Korea, Japan would suddenly just let North Korea open up, integrate it into the world economy, because of course there is a lot more than just the nuclear issue that is of concern, chemical weapons, biological, artillery, human rights, abductions, you name it, it just goes on and on and on. What then is the, I guess, motivation for North Korean officials to recommend to Kim Jong-un that we should pursue this path when it could just be the opening of a very long book of concessions that need to be given with the ultimate result that the North Korean government and those officials aren't there anymore. You're absolutely right. So I don't think if you're a North Korean official, you would actually recommend to Kim Jong-un that you really get rid of all your nuclear weapons. What the North Koreans can do is say that you will get rid of them, take some even active steps to dismantle some or show that you are getting rid of some. But why, if you were a North Korean, would you really get rid of it all? Even if you did, 
the Americans are not going to believe you, particularly when American security you know, national team is headed by the national security advisor, John Bolton, who's not going to believe you. So even if you do it and people are not going to believe you, what incentive do you have to truly get rid of it? I think the incentive that North Koreans have right now is to act like you're getting rid of it. Perhaps you'll go even far as that to buy some time to pro- to draw out this process. And if I'm North Korean, I, if I'm Kim Jong-un, I will wait out this administration by whatever means you can, and even maybe perhaps to sh- act like you do. But I truly am doubtful that North Korea will go and get rid of all of its nuclear program. And that's interesting because one of the things that we've heard so much this year from senior U.S. officials is that there is this several months timeline before North Korea has a credible ICBM. Would it would it be fair to say that the, the, the real goal right now for the US is to prevent that threshold being crossed versus actually denuclearization as the top priority? I think there would be a realistic priority for the US government to sort of stop North Korea from completing that finish line. Although, of course, uh, that timeline is disputed by different folks. You know, the intelligence community might think it's a shorter timeline, like Mike Pompeo saying, within a handful of months. But if you talk to people like Sig Hecker, he would say that timeline is two years or several years. So I don't know if that timeline is really um, something that everybody can agree on. But regardless, from U.S. government's perspective, I do think that's that's sort of what you want to prevent at, in a most realistic sense. One uh, missile specialist we speak to fairly regularly, uh, Uzi Rubin, who is the former Israeli director of their missile defense program, said that this debate is really academic at this point, his assessment was that North Korea has demonstrated clearly that it has a ICBM capability and that threat should be taken seriously as being able to project some form of nuclear warhead to the United States. The only real difference is the reliability of that delivery system. So we could be talking about, let's just say for argument's sake, a 1 in 10 chance that it might work versus a 8 or 9 out of 10 chance that it can work. If that's the case, then why are people like Bolton in particular talking as if there is still this window of opportunity. Voices like that from the more hardline end of the spectrum would be more similar to those Israeli missile engineers like Uzi Rubin, who who seem to think that this ship has already sailed. Well, I think because they're relying on sort of the intelligence community's assessment, and still there's a some sense of, you know, 1 out of 10 and 9 out of 10 still matters um, in terms of just the reliability still matters. But in politically, it's just impossible to now say it's already game over then because then it's sort of like we've North Korea is already there. So I think it's just politically not something that the US policymakers are ready to accept. The North Koreans have said it's game over. They've said now over 100 times since November when they did the Hwasong 15 test that their state nuclear force is complete. What do you make of that statement that they keep making? Well, I think they're saying that because they are prepared to then sort of stop at this stage, at least for now, and stop testing. They knew that they were going to turn into this charm offensive, peace offensive fades. So it makes sense for them to say, oh, now we've got it, uh, just to be able to come into this negotiation from what they think is a position of strength. How should we read when we see the DIA, for example, in March saying that the Hwasong 14 and Hwasong 15 both have uh, capability of reaching the United States? We're hearing, in other words, the DIA saying that that threat uh, is perceived to be sufficient to reach continental US versus, again, 
people like Pompeo and Bolton and others that say there is that window of opportunity. It's very, it's very confusing to hear these different voices. But Defense Intelligence Agency has always been sort of more on the aggressive side when it's predicting it, sort of North Korea's capabilities. Just traditionally, they have been more so. There are institutional differences uh, between different intelligence agencies in terms of how easily you're willing to accept a certain view. State Department, INR, for example, often would say we don't have enough evidence to draw one conclusion or another. So I think sort of, you know, this is a perspective. And again, different intelligence agencies can hold different assessments. And, you know, I think for Pompeo and others, I think it's really hard for policymakers to just sort of say, okay, North Korea has completed, truly completed its program and they have achieved what they've wanted to achieve. It's just, it's just politically, it's hard for the U.S. policymakers to accept and say. I'm curious to hear your views on a few issues that have been sort of emerging recently in, in this particular field. One, the debate about Korean speaking ability. Do you think you need to be able to speak Korean to do a good job as an analyst in this field? No, I don't think so, because I've seen excellent Korean analysts who don't speak Korean. Now, that said, I think language is culture. With language fluency, you can also have a deeper understanding of the culture that you are covering. It's, it's a bonus. I wouldn't say it's a requirement. You can add. Um, you can add layers. And, you know, you can, you can certainly add to your analysis, but no, it's not a requirement. And I guess one, one example of that, when we saw the South Korean spy chief going to meet Kim Jong-un with Vice Minister of Unification and other South Korean delegates. It was a Monday night. They were drinking soju. And a lot I saw on Twitter a lot of people saying, oh, these Koreans, they all got drunk. Living in Korea, I, I, day by day, you, every time I leave the office, I see that culture in play. And it doesn't mean, I think, what some people in this country think, that it's just a big jolly. And yeah. no, that's exactly right. And you know, that's the way Koreans like to connect, to reach sort of a, a deeper level level of chemistry and it's very important in terms of relationship building for bonding purposes to gain trust. Oftentimes, Koreans think you have to drink and, and talk frankly and to be able to then have, like, to be able to trust each other. So all of this is a cultural context that you do really, I think it's better if you understand them. And how will Kim and Trump work? Trump doesn't drink. No, actually, Kim, that's that's true. Trump does not drink. I don't know if Kim Jong-un plays golf. There is a language barrier and cultural difference. Having seen Kim Jong-un sort of the pictures of how he received the South Korean delegation. He seemed to be very warm in terms of at least body language. There's a lot of touching body language, smiles, and so on. So I think Kim Jong-un has an incentive to make sure this meeting goes well. I think he's a smart guy, so maybe he'll learn how to play Trump. And the other thing, um, just to, as another issue I'm curious to hear your view on is uh, Anna Fifield from the Washington Post recently, with good reason, has been drawing attention to the number of so-called manuals that we see at uh, conferences, at think tanks, etc. What do you think is the reason that there seems to be, and I don't know if this is just Korean studies because that's all I've been doing for the last seven or eight years. What's the reason for this imbalance in gender that we sort of seem to see day by day? Well, I really hope it's not because uh, the men just can you know, think of a good woman because we know that and Anna has compiled this excellent list of all the female Korean watchers who are truly excellent. It's hard to know Maybe it's just a bias. You're just used to just inviting your male colleagues. But I do think there's more awareness uh, thanks to people like Anna and thanks to, you know, a lot of women uh, who are now in position of sort of influence or they are, you know, higher position. So they, I think also it's a Confucian societies in general. 
uh, that's sort of the one of the reasons, uh, at least for South Korea, this is a similar issue in Japan, and I'm sure China too. Part of it is culture. But again, I think the way to sort of deal with this issue is continually raise awareness, mm. like, like you're doing right now. Dr. Terry, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for having me on.